1: Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show, where we break down the complex worlds of health, fitness, family, business, and relationships with the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Gabby Reese, and I'm here to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life isn't always easy. Let's try working on managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, life is just one big experiment. And we're all doing our best.
0: If I could go back and tell my 25-year-old self anything, it would be stop doing aerobics, you know, (laughs) to focus more on muscle building because the muscle you go into this process with is what is most likely going to keep you healthy, decrease your risk of diabetes and insulin resistance and inflammation. And so we were so focused on thin, 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 and not strong, strong, strong. You know and so now when I'm counseling my patients I'm like we're working out now to be strong to have a strong heart to have a strong mind to have strong muscles and bones we're not working out to be thin that is a fallacy we live in obesogenic society and everything around us is trying to make us gain weight, you know, gain fat in places we don't want it or need it. And so, you know, untangling how difficult this process is, you know, is important. But most obesity medicine specialists feel like if we can get the lifestyle changes put into place and sustainable for this patient, that she may be able to get off the medication and sustain her weight
1: loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Mary Claire Haver. Now, Dr. Haver is an OBGYN. She has something called the Galveston diet. But what I will say is we are going to talk all things, women and hormones. And simultaneously to this show, I will be releasing because I never like to leave anyone out when I can, Dr. Kyle Gillette, that is more male skewed. Now, having said that, if you have a daughter or a girlfriend or a wife or a sister or a mother, you might wanna listen to this because Dr. Haver has a natural knack. This is not, this is I'm sure not what she intended. You know, she had a practice, but then things shifted in her own life. She had lost a brother, created a lot of stress, had gained a bunch of weight because she was sort of moving into her late 40s and she realized, wait a second, none of this is working. So not only did she figure it out for herself, she even went back to school to understand deeper about nutrition, she also wanted to figure out how to do it for her patients and what systems in place and what programs around lifestyle can we help people whether they're younger? And now she's specializing in perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, maybe even things you want to do to avoid making that harder later. She is so good at communicating. I know it's funny to say she's almost become a, a TikTok sensation, if you will. And she has incredible programs that involve exercise. There's hormone replacement. If you have questions about that, we talk all about that. And like I said, she has a, the Galveston diet. And so she is helping women understand the amount of control that they have, but it still does come from lifestyle and that you don't have to suffer through these parts of your life, whether it's your cycles or menopause, but there's so much out there that we can do to make it a lot easier. So if you're not interested in listening to all things women and hormones, then head over to Dr. Kyle Gillette, listen to them both. And I hope you enjoy. Dr. Mary Claire Haver, thank you. I wish, I really wish this is a one I could do in person. I always want to do my interviews in person, but I definitely was like, oh, this would be one. So if you ever come to California, I would love to have you on. Absolutely. So you have the Galveston diet and book does that mean you're in gout Gal- like where are you physically right now i'm in galveston texas okay. so that's where just, i live yeah making sure i have to ask i mean you're you're trained as an obgyn and mm-hmm. also in culinary medicine you went back to school for that are you surprised uh, that you're you know doing now you, you know you have a big following online in this communication and i know you had your own experience but i'm just curious personally if you and and know you have children if if everyone's like wow this is kind of unusual what you're doing now
0: so yes um i was your bread and butter OBGYN physician for 20 years i also was helping to run a residency program i was at a big academic institution and literally i thought i would do that until the day i retired which would probably be close to death and you know covid threw us some curve balls my own menopause threw me curve balls my realization of the lack of my own knowledge and education around menopause and menopause care, you know, I mean, I was absolutely fine. I can deliver a baby like nobody's business, you know, I can do a pap smear, you know, but where I realized was a huge gap in my own education and knowledge was nutrition and menopause. And I thought, well, I'm curious about the nutrition part because we learned zero in medical school and residency other than it was kind of like good nutrition was like porn, you know, when you see it you know, like that was (laughs) just, that's all we got. And so, you know, going back to school, getting a good background in medical nutrition and, you know, how it applies to medicine and inflammation and, and all the things just really opened my eyes. And what online that began as a conversation with menopause and nutrition just exploded into all things menopause. I literally would have patients, or excuse me, followers say, and patients do you think my frozen shoulder could be related to menopause? And so enough people would ask me that I would go, huh. And I'd start looking it up and just be shocked by the amount of data around the menopause status, you know, perimenopause and menopause and musculoskeletal issues. And so it just took me down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. But I just feel like it's where I'm meant to be right now, that I, I did a really good job at kind of being a really good basic ob but now I'm a menopause specialist and I absolutely love it.
1: You know listen, it gives you the credibility. and and but I will say you have a knack. Like your communication, you really have such a natural uh, talent for communicating it. And just because you mentioned it, it is the frozen shoulder because of lack of protein and lack of resistance training? What is it, or is it a hormone?
0: I think it's a little bit of everything. You know, mm. kind of how we're moving at that stage of our lives, um combined with estrogen as a really as it turns out is a powerful anti-inflammatory hormone and there are estrogen receptors on every organ system in our body including musculoskeletal. So when you take that estrogen away combined with the nutrition things we kind of got away with in our 30s, you know, we have endocrine aging which is what's happening to women specifically with our ovaries and then chronologic aging as everyone gets older. And so, you know, we lose elasticity, we lose lubrication, but that process seems to be accelerated in the menopausal state, peri- beginning of perimenopause. And we're seeing this increasing amount of joint dysfunction.
1: Now, just, I, I always am trying to figure out, we live in a in a way that's less natural than we used to live. And the great thing is we, we are living longer, but I, I am curious, let's say two, 300 years ago, is there a concept of how women went through menopause differently just based on lifestyle now I know that they didn't have access to the to certain care that we have now but they certainly didn't you know do on a daily basis some of the things that we're doing now was there any information or did you come upon any literature about how it used to be
0: sure so from an anthropological you know point we have you know because of modern nutrition and modern medicine. We have, or the age of which we go through, you know, our reproductive lives are increased, um, is an easier way to say it. We basically go through puberty l- earlier than we did generations ago. Um, and that's mostly due to, um, improved nutrition. And then we are extending our lives because of modern medicine where people aren't back, you know, Shoot, don't shoot me, but vaccinations are a huge part of why we live so long. We're yeah. not dying of infectious disease. We're not, you know, succumbing to certain disease states. So we have medication. We're not dying of infections because we have antibiotics or antivirals and et cetera. And so, but the average life expectancy was shortly after when natural menopause hit. And the age of menopause, that's a little harder to tell, basically, when they could document that a woman stopped childbearing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, because back in the day, there was no contraception and it was only nursing a child that would keep you, keep your children spaced out a, a long enough to help you survive. So, there's, you know, why is there a menopause? Because it's only us, killer whales, and I believe giraffes, some species of giraffes that have menopause, every other mammal seems like they are able to reproduce up until the time of death. So there's a grandmother hypothesis. Um, Both it started with whales where the grandmothers have a very specific job in the community. They help raise the young ones while the moms go out and hunt, you know, like it, it ensures survival of the species. And so there, there's some pot at this last conference I was at, there was someone was postulizing like, why, why would it be an an environmental advantage for a woman to go through menopause? Um, but we really died shortly after, you know, there was very rare that you would have this grandmother that lived a very long time. We,
1: we, we have a joke. I have some friends. I I think you and I are about the same age. I might, I, I may be a little older, um, but I'll be 55. Okay. So we're, we're almost the same age. I'm a little, actually, I'm a little younger, but anyway we joke that like, you know, we weren't really supposed to go through this. We were just supposed to be dead. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, you have to have a sense of humor. I have a, a large male audience and just for covering tracks before we go deep, can we just kind of explain exactly, you know, what is menopause and, and also sure. in, in, a, in simple terms kind of, cause it, you know, it's so easy. Everyone goes, Oh, she's crazy. Or Oh, open the window. She <laughs> has hot flashes and it's all of that but maybe we could just kind of identify first you know what, what it is, is what it is
0: so menopause is the end of the production of estrogen progesterone and testosterone from our ovarian tissue basically death of the ovaries and the average age that it happens at least in north america is age 51 but 45 to 55 is still normal um, perimenopause is the beginning of that process. You don't just wake up with your ovaries being dead. We go through a process called perimenopause where you have this kind of roller coaster effect of hormone status on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis until the ovaries just kind of peter out at the end, similar to kind of what you go through in Hashimoto's disease, where you have this burnout phase and then no, no production whatsoever. And that begins seven to 10 years before the period stops. So we're looking at a woman, probably a good third of her life being in this menopausal state. And so what might that look like to a woman? Well, eventually her periods will stop if she still has a uterus or doesn't have an AED or, you know. And so, but that's just like the outside physical hallmark of what's going on. There are, as I said before, because there are estrogen receptors in every single organ system in our body, nothing gets left behind. And everyone, we're so biodiverse that everyone's kind of symptomatic milieu is going to be different. 85% of us will have the hot flashes, which is kind of the menopause trope, the woman's sweating or, you know, but the big ones are, you know, sleep disruption and, It's really that what has shocked me in my own recent studies are the different medical societies identifying independent risk factors for, for example, heart disease, musculoskeletal disease, neurological disease, brain dysfunction, mental health disorders, you know, genital urinary symptoms outside of just chronologic aging. Mm. So say we took identical twins. And, um, one of them lost her ovaries due to cancer or something, you know, some medical reason why she needed to have her ovaries removed at say 45 and her twin went through menopause naturally at 55. The woman who went through, even though they are biologically the same, the 45 year old will now have a significantly increased risk of heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, stroke, decreased quality of life, increased visceral fat gain, all without change. Even though they eat the same thing, they move the same way, you know, this loss of a of estrogen production and progesterone and testosterone really leads to long-term consequences in our bodies.
1: And I feel, I don't know, I feel the pendulum swinging back. So there's more people like you. Uh, So was it in 2019, you went back to school Mm -hmm. and you became a a because you realized, oh, and, and we'll get into it about your own journey, you know, how you were feeling dealing with, you know, trying to fast and diet and, and not sort of having the results that you wanted started recognizing this gap in nutrition. So you went back to school mm-hmm. for culinary medicine and you even had to, you know, like take your boards and do all that again. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is I saw kind of like a pendulum, like, let's say eighties, nineties, where it was like, oh, just Medicaid or, you know, take your uterus out or just sort of, sweeping like this but now i i see the pendulum sort of correcting with and i'm putting in quotes real doctors saying wait a second let's treat the the person holistically mm-hmm. let's address nutrition so i actually feel really hopeful because you know even when you talked about hormone replacement it's like there was bad voodoo around that so i i i feel like the conversation is moving into a really interesting sweet spot with people like you who are blending kind of this east and west and taking the whole person into into account, so you know I think regardless even if you're healthy i'm i'm fifty three I still have my cycle. It feels like it's sputtering out a bit, but I think overall, I've had a pretty healthy adult life. I didn't even drink alcohol in my adult life training, things like that, so i'm I'm probably setting myself up for a best case scenario, right, but I still think it's also maybe getting into the relationship of like parts of it are kind of inconvenient. Like you don't always feel great. And mm-hmm. and so I, I my hope is to really get a lot of information out in this conversation, but also to remind people, it's like training or like I've had surgeries before and they just want to give you tons of pain med and I go, well, it, no, it's, it's going to hurt. Like there's a part of me also that wants to remind people that I still think a part of this, even if it's great, you can get weird headaches. It just can be a pain in the butt. You know, you can feel more tired. And and that is maybe also part of it, if that makes sense. Like, where I don't know, if, unless we just check out and we totally just medicate. I, I think that that's also part of like that kind of the experience too.
0: So when I have, I still see patients. I've just focused now on menopause care. Mm-hmm. And when a woman walks out of my office with a treatment plan, it's not just like, here's your hormones, one and done. We have a conversation about that. We go over the risks and benefits. We make a decision together, you know, whether or not this is something she's interested in, you know, and if she's a good candidate for. But the very most important thing I talk to them about is nutrition. The second most thing I have talked to them is about movement. And movement, you know, I have a in-body scanner in my office. So I'm able to measure muscle mass, visceral fat levels. And we I direct nutrition and, and exercise recommendations. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a personal trainer. I'm not qualified to like develop a program for someone, but I'm like, you need to focus on resistance training. You know, I think all women should be. And if I could go back and tell my 25-year-old self anything, it would be stop doing aerobics, you know, <laughs> to focus more on muscle building because the muscle you go into this process with is what is most likely going to keep you healthy, decrease your risk of diabetes and insulin resistance and inflammation. And so we were so focused on thin, 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 and not strong, 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 you know? And so now when I'm counseling my patients, I'm like, we're working out now to be strong, to have a strong heart, to have a strong mind, to have strong muscles and bones. We're not working out to be thin. That is a fallacy. How do you so, how
1: do you get a a patient maybe who is a little older who isn't familiar cuz I could see where it's intimidating how do you what suggestions do you make regardless that you're a trainer or not to sort of say stick your toe in the water cuz gyms are sure. they're intimidating for a intimidating, l- yeah. You know imagine you're 50 and you're like I'm going to bang iron for the first time
0: so that's a, that's a great question. So if she's sedentary and really doesn't do anything, we start with walking. Mm. Okay. I talked to them about walking and then adding in maybe some hand weights while she's walking or getting the wristbands, the one pound wristbands, actually putting on one of the, buying one of the weighted vests to walk with. if you have access to a treadmill, walking on an incline on the treadmill to help keep your legs strong, there are ways to kind of ease into it, but you're right. You have to meet the patients or your followers where they are. And then build from there. And then the understanding that this is the rest of your life. You know, yeah. we are gonna have to work at this because of a process called sarcopenia, which is the loss of muscle mass with age. If you wanna lift that grandbaby in 20 years, if you wanna climb that mountain, if you don't wanna plague your children with your chronic disease and them being worried about you all the time,
1: this is what we need to do to stay healthy. Do you see it where you have women maybe who've actually overtrained and they come in and see you? And my
0: most challenging patients are athletes. Really. Um, who have enjoyed a certain level of of fitness and they are so frustrated mm-hmm. when the tried and true and their training is no longer giving them the cosmetic results that they want. They're actually still really healthy. They just have a few more curves. And but they're in their mindset, you know, even though they they know the mechanics of it and they know the basics, but they've always been a certain phenotype. And they're really, really frustrated that menopause has has thrown them a curveball and they can't exercise their way out of it.
1: So do you talk to these patients, these, let's say women that are like, I've been thin my whole life or I've trained and I've kind of controlled things through movement and probably some form of nutrition. I think, you know, that idea about comparing ourselves to ourselves is a, is a really interesting thing. And so do you just sort of say to them, like you show them, Hey, you're really healthy. Look at your bone density, your, your fat to body, lean muscle mass is great. Exactly.
0: We do blood work. I'm like, look at your cholesterol, look at your homocysteine, look at your calcium, you know. And they are like, oh, oh, but I want to be 120 pounds again. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you probably will have to make changes that aren't going to promote your health in order to get to that number on the scale, and I'm not going to recommend that.
1: So let's talk about the scale you just launched into that. So maybe we could just talk about your own journey because I I thought it was not only compelling but probably very common. And a lot of women probably have experienced what you went through, and it, it's always maybe also comforting to know that even you, you who knows had to go on a journey to learn, and also that you've worked your way to a place that you wanted to be.
0: So I um, had, outside of pregnancy and maybe the freshman 15, had always kind of enjoyed thinness. I thought I worked for it. Turned out probably not so much. You know, a lot of it was genetic. And sadly, I based a lot of my self-worth or my view of myself as a healthy person on what the number on the scale said. So, you know, I'm cruising along, you know, I was exercising regularly. I thought I was eating healthy. I did have the exercise thing nailed, but Then I had kind of two things happen at once. I had been on birth control pills to control polycystic ovarian syndrome, and I had done very well on them, no problems with them whatsoever. And then I was 48, 49, and said, probably time for me to come off and see where I'm at menopausally. So talked to my practitioner. We decided, let's get off the pill and recheck some hormone levels, see where you're at. And, um, right at that time, my oldest brother, oldest surviving brother at the time, um, got really, really sick. He was, had been dealing with HIV and hepatitis for a long time. And he was in like end stage liver failure. We get the call that he is in a coma and he had had a stroke. And so... I just wasn't ready. You know, I thought I had more time. I hadn't like said the things or had the closure, you know, that I wanted with him. And, um, so, you know, I rushed to his bedside, my sister, who's a hospice nurse, she and I did the end of life care, got him home. He died surrounded by his family. It was beautiful, but I kind of lost my mind for a little bit.
1: But I want to, I want to, and- I want to say something because you're, you're a very, I can tell that you're a very strong person, you know, but that you had already, when you were a young kid, you lost a brother. And mm-hmm. when you're finding out about your brother, uh, uh, you were in the middle of a surgery. I think it's mm-hmm. also putting into focus that you're dealing with, you have your own family, you have a practice that you're having, you're doing very sensitive things, important, dangerous things with people. And then you have life, the other parts of life and right. trying to juggle all of it.
0: Yeah I, um, yeah. I was in the OR and the phone kept ringing and finally, I'm like, answer it. You tell the the circulating staff to answer the phone. And they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, hang on. And they said, I think you should hear this. And they put the phone in my ear while I'm operating. And they said, you know, he's had a stroke. He's in a coma. We don't know if he's going to make it. And first of all, I should have never said, put the phone in my ear. You know, I mean, my husband used to call me to find the kid's shoes in the middle of surgery, of you know,
1: like, you know, as they do, <laughs> so, as they do, as they do.
0: <laughs> so I'm, I'm not thinking anything of it. They're like, you should hear this. I'm like, okay. And, um, a partner came down, scrubbed me out. We were at the end of the case, you know, it wasn't as dramatic. And, um, it, it, you know, we had lost Jeff when I was nine to leukemia. And so, and Bob had never had children of his own he had had the same partner for 35 years but he basically treated my girls like they were his you know spoiled and rotten nothing like having a gay uncle who's fabulous and does drag on the side and you know like to play dress up and <laughs> tea parties and yeah. all the things it was really fun help you try out for cheerleader and you know i mean he was he was fantastic so his death uh you know Hit me really, really hard, and so I had to, you know, I had some bereavement leave, did all the funeral stuff, went back, and had to go right back to work, and so was just kind of, you know, a robot doctor getting through my day, my cases, my patients, and then at home, and I had nothing left for my family, and I would go in the pantry and just stuff myself with whatever, and it was like the kids, the kids, I would buy those goldfish, delicious goldfish crackers in the giant uh, package, and I would just eat, 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 and then drink wine till I could go to bed. And so, you know, months of that until the grief started lifting in the fog and I was like still miserable and not sleeping. I had really just thought that was all grief. And finally, I'm like, wait, I'm in menopause. When was my last period? You know, like I'm menopausal and I, you know, disrupted sleep, horrific hot flashes, Suddenly my tummy was much bigger, you know, weight gain was, you know, 10, 15 pounds, a lot for me, but like this gut that like came out of nowhere. So, okay, I could hear his, my brother's voice, like, you got yourself into this. You got to get yourself out. You can't blame this on me anymore. So I went back to the tricks that I used to do after babies or if I'd gained five or 10 pounds, you know, work out more, eat less to the point of obsession, to the point where I was severely calorically restricting, doing two a days, only doing cardio and it would work a little bit and then just bounce right back on. And so my husband was leaving for a trip and um, he was going out of town for a few weeks. And I said, When you get back, you're going to have the wife you deserve. And he just looked at me like, Honey, I love you. You look great. I don't care. But you're obsessed and your girls are watching.
1: Mm, that's, that's a big one.
0: That hit me hard. And so, you know, all the things I'd said in lectures and stuff, you know, but not, I wasn't practicing in real life. So I said, Okay. So still being type A, so I called up the PhD nutritionist (laughs) at the university I was employed at and was like, what is going on in menopause? I'm struggling. My patients are struggling. I mean, this was the same thing my patients were all complaining of. And it's kind of embarrassing that I'm hitting the pain point of weight gain because it just exploded into so much more. But that's what brought me to this discussion was... The weight. And, you know? and listen,
1: it's an indication. And sometimes, unfortunately, we're only moved by what's inconvenient to us. And so when we look in the mirror, you know, that's sometimes what we respond to. If I say, hey, listen, you're becoming increasingly um, insulin insensitive, that may not really hit you between the <laughs> eyes, you know. So yeah. I think it's understandable, but it's also important to separate that out from the scale necessarily, as far yes. as like. Hey, listen, as we move through life, we may not weigh the same at sixty as we did at twenty. Right.
0: Oh and it doesn't mean you're not healthy. Right. You're not beautiful. You're not
1: worthy. But what is going on also? Like simultaneously, like going, is this a sign? So okay, so then how did you what What did you do?
0: So they sent me down a rabbit hole of nutrition um, research, and so lots of stuff about inflammation and quality of nutrition and how how the registered dietitians measure in the inflammatory index of foods. And I just was like, "This is amazing!" But I realized there was such a gap in my education, and that's when I started. I started asking them, "Do you think I can get a master's in nutrition?" And then right at that time, the, the AOA is the Alpha Omega Alpha's Honor Society for Medical School. I was a faculty advisor. We brought in a guest speaker and he was from Tulane and he ran the Culinary Medicine program. I'd never heard of it. And I was immediately like sign me up. Like this is it. This is what I want to do because it was built for advanced practitioners, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, Pharmacists to get a really good background in nutrition and then add in the medical part you know on how you would treat patients and we actually the labs were in test kitchens where we went and we learned cooking techniques and how to walk through different ways to you know meet the patients where they are as far as food and their their pattern of eating and then how we can initiate changes that are doable for the long term. It really was the best thing i've ever done. And so that's when I started crystallize. So it, in the middle of all that, I'm talking to my patients. I'm coming up with plans. I'm you know experimenting with things. And my patients or my guinea pigs. They're like, okay, let's do this. And they're all menopausal, or you know, peri, or pre, or post. And um, so, and it just kind of cre- it just kind of grew organically. Mm-hmm into the Galveston diet.
1: Did you bring that home? Was your was your husband and your family, were they all like, oh, what's happening? Or And were you starting to... Impl- kind
0: of. They were like, what are you doing? Because I started with <laughs> fasting and suddenly I wasn't eating breakfast, you know? And they were like, huh. You know, the, my little girls, they were, you know, middle school and early high school at the time. They just, you know, want to be with their friends and hang out, you know? So they were watching, but it wasn't pathologic, you know? It wasn't a big deal because I was out of the house so early in the mornings. They really wouldn't notice if I didn't eat breakfast or something. Um, But I slowly was making changes. Um, They teased me that I was a little bit of an almond mom for a while. You know, um, there was a... um, video of a woman. It was pasta night at their house, and she was eating salad and sauce. And I've done that. (laughs) And so my kids sent it to me, and I apologized. I was like, you know, I was going through this learning phase (laughs) of nutrition and trying to diet. And um, sorry. (laughs) So... You know, my girls have the advantage of growing up in this generation, at least there. So my oldest is 22, my youngest is 19, and they are very, very curvy and they rock it like nobody's business. And it's, you know, I had been that shape that would have been considered too big in the 80s, you know, and they are like embracing it. They love it. They know they're healthy. They move their bodies. They eat wonderfully for the most part. And um, it's just a different mindset. I'm so happy for them.
1: Yeah, I always joke that if the Kardashians did one right thing, it was popularizing, yeah. <laughs> you know, curves.
0: Bringing back curves.
1: So do you, because a lot of times people will say to me, well, you know, this is just my genetics. And I'm like, well, no, you inherited that lifestyle from your family, typically. Because they go, oh, well, my family is bigger or, what, or mm-hmm. we, you know. And it's like, we inherit the lifestyle. So I think, do you have in your office sort of this conversation of almost having to get rid of an old belief system and develop a new belief system? Because I think that really gets in the way about people sort of saying, well, no, this is just how we are in my family. We're sort of bigger. Or the women all drop off a cliff after you know, 50 or whatever it is mm-hmm. and just get big and things like that. Do you have any ways that you prod them a little bit? We have conversations around defining health. And what
0: that looks like to them. And so many of us just defined health by a number on the scale. Mm. And so and so we have, you know, I show them, we look at blood work, you know, markers of inflammation. We look at, you know, lipids. We look at, you know, which is your cholesterol and your triglycerides. We look at their muscle mass. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I get to tell a woman like, oh my God, you have 80 pounds of muscle. Like I would cut off my right arm, you know, I would trade, you know, yeah. to get, 10 of those pounds from you and i'll I'll give you my cholesterol i'll give you my a1c you know my hemoglobin a1c and so you know that that there's they're just powerful people and that they've been told they're overweight or obese when they just have a lot of muscle and that's the bmi and your weight can't measure
1: that for you it's true someone so someone comes in and Let's I'm not I'm not using the word average. Let's just say they have an average lifestyle. They're not like, Mm -hmm. you know, uber crazy. Typical Western. Yeah. Right. Um, and they're, you know, I have friends that have said to me, you know, I'm eating air and moving and I continue to gain weight. And I know that this is something that you hear and this is something that really frustrates so many women when they're going through this because it's like, what else can I do? So maybe we can just kind of baby step uh, and you know, talking about the different types of fat, and and really people getting their head around the importance of your muscular mm-hmm. skeletal system. Um, yeah, I will say to people listening, if they want to look at other versions of this, uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon talks a lot about mm-hmm. dealing almost like another organ, and um, Dr. And Stacey, your muscle Mass, right, mm-hmm. and Dr. Stacy Sims. But when you talk about fasting in particular. A lot of high performance women, they're showing perform better fed. So I, maybe we could just do, because I like to try to be as consistent as possible when we're administering, is with the fasting, is it also just sort of pulling in, getting control and pulling in the reins a little bit? Or what are, what are we seeing that the fasting then does for women going through this? Sure. So
0: I approached fasting. What 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 interested me in fasting was not weight loss. It's not a great way to lose weight. You can actually eat terrible things in your window that also undo any inflammatory benefits. Um, I I approached it because some of the data around neuroinflammation and Alzheimer's and dementia, and lowering insulin levels, fasting glucose levels, and um, your fasting insulin level, and and I was just really astounded. I thought it was a fad. I'm like, why would you not eat breakfast? It's the most important meal of the day, or you know, whichever your fasting window is. You know, why would we have to limit or restrict how we eat? And there's just really good data, even into in women in menopause, showing some anti-inflammatory benefits, lower blood markers of inflammation, and lower um, now. This is in kind of average women, not high performance athletes, which is a whole different way to, you know, it's, you must feed your body more, you know, the muscles are just going to chew everything up. And, and so, um, but for most women who exercise less than, you know, four hours a week, fasting actually works pretty well for them. But again, it is not for everyone. It could trigger an eating disorder or hypoglycemia. I always tell people to ease into it. Give yourself six weeks if you're going to shoot for the 16-8, which is kind of what we preach. Um, but I have lots of students who are doing 12 and 12 and doing absolutely beautifully on it. So it seems that the medical benefits hit at about hour 12. And if you're if you're you know tagging on your, your food-free window with sleep, it's really not that long.
1: Right. I love that. And, and I do appreciate you make a suggestion about kind of getting people to build out 15 minute windows. So, Hey, start someplace Mm -hmm. and then add 15 minutes. So do that
0: for four or five days. Yeah. then
1: add another 15,
0: see how you feel, you know, do your workouts. How are you feeling? Listen to your body.
1: And that's another really important thing because we're going to talk about sort of the things that you're seeing on average. But people being trying to stay tuned in to how they're feeling, a lot of people, you know, they just sort of say, Well, tell me what to do. And they're still, they're not really checking in. And, and I'm always saying, What, whatever level of fitness or emotionality or whatever, it's like we can make all the best plans in the world, but we still need to understand how eating a certain way or did we get good night's sleep or what have you impacts us. So I, I always want to remind people um, that, you know, one size doesn't doesn't fit all. So you, you really talk about inflammation as being something that an insulin sensitivity is something that we really need to stay focused on. So, so she, she comes in to see you and she's like, I'm getting my butt kicked by this process. So is it blood work or is it first we're going to look at lifestyle? What's your approach?
0: So I have, I'm a little bit unique in that I have an hour with each patient. So I have time to kind of hit every, with each new patient and then 30 minutes on a follow-up. And so um, I also, not accepting insurance gives me that luxury. So the blood work is included in their visit. So I'm checking, I do everything. So I'm checking nutritional markers, inflammation markers, some hormone markers, depending on, you know, a lot of in, in menopause, a lot of conditions can have overlapping symptoms. So you think that, you know, oh, it's menopause, but maybe it's hypothyroidism or maybe it's both, you know, some autoimmune diseases can often present very similarly to what a menopausal woman would be going through. I've diagnosed lupus twice. Um, in the year, year and a half that I've been in clinic. And so, you know, I'm doing blood work to make sure I'm not missing something outside of menopause. And then we launch into lifestyle discussions, nutrition, movement, stress reduction, sleep, you know, it's all part of what I call the menopause toolkit Mm -hmm. and that everything works
1: synergistically together to get you to your best health. And, and in the brass tacks on lifestyle in movement, what are your sort of most baseline suggestions for women?
0: So I'm for resistance training at least twice a week, and you should be hitting all the major muscle groups. So I don't give them time limitations, you know, whatever it takes, you know, you should plan on at least 30, 45 minutes per session. um, If you're going to try to hit all of your body parts, I suggest some of the more popular online programs that I find to be pretty consistent, safe and reasonably priced. You know, we have Fortunate enough, through the years, we've accumulated a ton of exercise equipment. We have, you know, treadmills, bikes. <laughs> we have everything. I wish they got used as much as they should. But um, you know, Christmas gifts, my husband and I gift each other with more exercise equipment, and most of our travel is centered around t- hiking trips and things. And so, um, but that's how we've chosen to find joy and 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 move our bodies at the same time.
1: And with food, what's the let's say someone, I mean, because sometimes it's like people think they're doing a lot of the right things and there you'd be, it's like almost mind blowing, you know, what they're actually still consuming and they're actually trying to pay attention. And so what are the things I have found that a lot of people in, you know, in types of your types of practice sort of say, we're not going to add more things. We're actually just going to try to take out the things that are impact that aren't supporting you. So what's the conversation around food and how people approach that?
0: So if if someone comes in and they are um, sarcopenic, they've got really low muscle mass, they're below the 90th percentile, and I'm worried that they are, you know, going to be super high risk for osteoporotic fracture or being functionally deficient, we have a big conversation around protein intake, and a lot of them are shocked how much protein they need, you know. And so if you have low muscle mass and you're trying to get to just normal muscle mass, a rule of thumb is about a gram per pound of what you want to weigh, Right, you know? And so for me, that's about 120 grams of protein a day. And so most women are getting, the way in the Western diet, most women eat almost no protein at breakfast. They're doing like oatmeal or cereal or something they're getting. And the only protein they have is like wheat gluten from their or oats or something, and so then at lunch they might have a little bit of protein with their salad, or and then at dinner they're saving their protein for like that big piece of chicken or that big steak or something, and so one of the conversations I have is it's going to be a lot easier if you are working in at least ten grams of protein with each snack, and you know twenty to thirty with each meal, and they're just like what, you know, um, and how might you know? So we we walk through that what that would look at if she's coming in and she has elevated visceral fat. We go through all the health risks associated with that. And what are, yes, if I lock them in a cage and starve them, of course they would lose visceral fat, but they'd also lose everything else, their minds. And so- you know, making sure she's getting enough fiber. Women aren't tracking their fiber; they have no idea how much they're getting. Minimum for a woman is twenty five grams a day. I push to thirty five personally. We talk about uh, magnesium, how important that is, and trying to get that through nutrition. You know, I don't recommend sub- supplement. Supplements are meant to supplement a healthy diet. If you can't fit them all in one of those little pill boxes, your daily supplements you know, that's, that's just Dr. Haver's rule of thumb. There's no science behind that, but you know, you know, supplements are when you have an allergy and intolerance, you know, cost is keeping you from being able to get what you need, but you really should strive to get what you need from food, whole foods.
1: So on, on the, there's so many different types of magnesium Mm-hmm. I think it throws people like, is that for <laughs> sleeping or going to the bathroom or relaxing? Like, which one is that All of the for? above.
0: And it depends on
1: which kind. <laughs> so can we just for fun sort of break down the few types of sure. magnesium and actually what they do? Because I know pe- after a while, because people are becoming more informed, but they're like, wait, which magnesium would help me sleep better? So
0: there's bioavailability when we talk about anything we eat nutritionally or, you know, any chemical substance we're trying to use for health, which means how much of it that we put in our stomach actually gets into our bloodstream. So different types of magnesium have different levels of bioavailability. The ones that don't go into our bloodstream, stay in the gut, can induce bowel movements. So we use like mag citrate, mag oxide to help like clean the bowels for a colonoscopy. Anybody over 50 out there, hopefully you've, you've had yours. Um, that's not a fun process, but you know, medically necessary, that's magnesium, you know, a certain milk of magnesia, you know, was used for, um, inducing bowel movements. Whereas a magnesium glycinate or tarate, those have great bioavailability. They're really great for raising your blood levels. The one that I tend to recommend the most for, for, for to get to the brain, so for sleep, for ADHD, for um, SSRI-resistant depression, magnesium l seems to be one of the better ones that crosses the blood-brain barrier, and that's what I take for sleep.
1: Yeah, that's I do too. I'm not a great sleeper. I never have been. And um, so it's always the dance around. When it when it comes to supplementing, you know, besi- I mean, D, I feel like we sort of have to have um, to. And have then to. agree. A multi I, I don't know. Do you or you're like, hey, listen, let's really focus on because I agree with you. If we can get it from food, there is nothing better. But if you sort of said, hey, listen, let's cover the basis these supplements, it's pretty hard to get in our food. It's D Mm -hmm. and and what other ones do you like?
0: D and um, omega-3 fatty acids. If you're not eating salmon every day, now there are vegetarian and vegan forms, but it's ALA, um, which has to be converted to DHA and EPA in the blood. So it's not as efficient. You have to eat a lot more. And so if you're a vegan or vegetarian, you should consider supplementing with like Nordic Naturals is one that's algae-based. So the fish eat the algae, And that's where the fish get their omegas from is algae. And then bigger fish eat smaller fish and the cycle continues. Um, But it all comes from the algae. And so you can get it from there, Um, but it's a lot more expensive than just doing a fish oil supplement.
1: Yeah. And I I actually think, and I'd love to know how you feel about it, going back to a younger woman, I think that that's also supportive to them. I'd love to hear you know your thoughts on it for their menstrual cycles and things it i i feel like the omega's are really supportive for the health of the cycle as well
0: so the omega's are made up in all of our cell membranes and they they are they have a lot of brain activity and our menstrual cycles begin in the brain at the level of the pituitary and hypothalamus so whatever we can do to keep that brain stem healthy and those functioning absolutely so in omega 3s in children with ADHD have been shown to be almost as effective as some of the neurological medications
1: yeah and and that's what i i love about that so you you have two daughters you've gone through teenagers and you yourself have been a young adult <laughs> um i have i have three daughters and um maybe and then i, I would love to talk about hormone you know hormones themselves estrogen and testosterone mm-hmm. and progesterone but just kind of for somebody listening. So we talked about the omegas. I, my, my girls actually willingly take that stuff. I, I sort of say, Hey, if you like it, it's there. And then, you know, you hope, and like you said, it's sort of really just being an example, but is there anything else that, and I know you're doing a different part of your practice when you have a younger person who sort of really, their hormones are just kind of finding their way um, mm-hmm. that is supportive besides the nutrition and trying to get to bed, even though at that age they naturally stay up later. Mm-hmm. Their brain. Um, is there anything that you did, even with your own girls, that um, maybe is supportive of them? Because that that can be a challenging time. So
0: I, you know, my kids are super um, critical. <laughs>
1: so, no. You're, and you, have,
0: you, have, you know, my you oldest is a nutrition science major and she's graduating in May and starting medical school in July. So she's very, very verbal about everything that comes out of my mouth and what I might say and not say, but she is a big fan of evidence (laughs) and not cherry picking evidence to fit whatever your hypothesis is looking at all of the evidence. Um, She's a big fan of omega-3 fatty acids. She's a big fan of vitamin D at almost every age. And she's a big fan of really trying to get what you can get through nutrition. And so kind of the the rule of thumb I, I advise followers and patients is just track what you're eating for a week, eat your normal diet, and see where you're falling low on with the recommended daily amounts, Okay. Are you getting enough calcium? Are you getting enough? And then try to use food. Is it is it easy enough to add in a handful of of pumpkin seeds for mag, or you know, or a little extra serving of dairy for calcium if you can tolerate it, you know, like like to get to hit those levels? Or is that something you should be supplementing? And you can do that with kids as well.
1: Yeah i I think it is. My husband is really. He's always like, uh, you know, trying s- everything in food. You know. He, he, he he found out he you know we everyone was so taking so much quercetin and he's like okay capers i'm like oh my god here we go you know like we're going to be eating how many capers
0: um <laughs> capers <for>
1: <laughs> birth control this is a tough mm. one because you said for example you were taking it for something you know mm-hmm. to kind of manage something else but mm-hmm. in a perfect world if someone is not prepared or is done having children or isn't there and let's say they didn't have any extra sort of unusual conditions for you what do you what do you feel cuz i i do i mean birth control can be a little bit tough it's tough on you what what do you think would be sort of maybe the the highest the best w- way to start if someone could to- you know kind of tolerate intrauterine
0: device an it, iud right absolutely yeah uh so it's non-hormonal. Well, there's, there's a few different types. Right. The ones that have progesterone in them, it's a very, very low level of progesterone and it's locally acting. So if you have heavy periods... And cramps, a progesterone-containing IUD is a fabulous option. You don't have to have had a baby. You can put it into someone very young, you know, in the younger end of the spectrum yeah. safely if you know what you're doing. One of the problems that we're seeing in a conversation I've gotten involved in is gynecologic pain and treatment of pain for gynecologic procedures. It's very variable as to what your provider is going to offer you. And so, you know, I was doing paracervical blocks. I am medication, PO, oral medication. I was doing everything I could outside of sedating someone for these procedures because they can be very traumatic, especially with someone with a history of trauma there anyway. And so, you know, I want someone to have good, adequate contraception or cycle control or whatever the goal is for her medically. And so for me, IUD is the best option because it's not suppressing her ovulation. She still has normal estrogen function. We're not worried about bone density loss. So, you know, that's usually one of my tops.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and, and you know live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babbel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have, it's really quick. They've got 10-minute lessons, and but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know like, talk about food and directions and things like that and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and deliver with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you, you know, speak a new language. In fact, a study showed, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer for a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now. You can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby, that's Babbel, dot com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Do you address anything with the microbiome connected to hormone health, or have you? I know it's so complicated. I mean, just dealing it is, with hormones—it
0: is a thing. And so, what we are finding in menopause this is I'm so I'm writing a new book, and the contract is signed, and you know I've got the collaborator on menopause, like the medical ends of menopause. And one of the chapters is on the microbiome and what happens in menopause. We see, at least in our gut, and so our gut flora and our that genital ur- urinary flora are closely tied. The two outlets are right next to each other and they share quite a bit of the <laughs> same bacteria. And so um, we see lactobacillus, which should be the predominant bacteria in the vagina. Vagina is not sterile. And so in our reproductive years, when our estrogen levels are high, we have lactobacillus should be number one. Whenever we lose that lactobacillus, we can have bacterial vaginosis overgrowth, as a lot of us have dealt with BV over the years, or yeast overgrowth. You know, how many times has anyone, any of your listeners taken an antibiotic for whatever, and then ended up with a yeast infection? And it's basically, we killed off the good bacteria and the yeast didn't have anything holding them back. So, you know, you end up kind of in a vicious cycle there. Well, in the gut turns out estrogen affects our gut as well. And our gut microbiome becomes more like that of a man's. As w- And it's in the same time, our, our risk of heart disease and, cardi- you know, our health disease risk goes up to a man's. And they're now thinking it's close, more closely tied to the gut
1: microbiome than ever. And because that, you know, that in the last five years is really, oh, mental health and all, you know, everything is being t- tied back to the gut. Mm -hmm. serotonin, all, you know, all these things is, well, how do you peel that onion? Like you have a patient and they're like, wait a second, you know, what are you talking, like you want me to eat this much protein and now you're talking to me about peeling. (laughs) And
0: probiotics and fiber. Yeah. It's like thinking of things in a totally different way. And fortunately in my practice, most people have seen me on social media, you know, they're coming with a, some level of knowledge. They know what they're in for when they're coming to my office. And I have a questionnaire they fill out. Do you understand <laughs> that Dr. Haver is going to make nutrition recommendations? Are you okay with this? You know, because a lot of them just want one of the quick weight loss medications. They want one of the, you know, either speed or. So I'm like, no, 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 no. that's not what we do here. <laughs> so, you know, they think it's a quick, quick weight loss clinic and it, it's not.
1: Wait, what's that weight loss drug that everyone's taking? Zem, Zem, uh, the or so they called? they're called
0: the incretins, and um, it's, a, it's a class of medications that were originally developed to treat type 2 diabetes, right. which they do very well. But one of the things that they've noticed in the last couple of years is that they are seeing weight loss with it. And so I think, you know, Peter Atia talks about this yeah right now extensively, and I like the way he puts it. You know, again, it's reaching the number on the scale rather than looking at other measures of health. And so what they what he's finding in his clinic, what I'm seeing in mine, is because I have a muscle measurement tool there, is we're losing quite a bit of muscle mass if you're not careful to monitor protein intake, make sure they're doing resistance training. Again, it's just a tool to help in someone's weight loss journey. It should not be the only thing you're doing. So what's alarming those of us in this space is that everyone's prescribing it, you're getting online, you know, without proper follow-up and it's weight loss at any cost. And so I think that's, that's never going to be the right way to go.
1: Right. And people, like you said, for every uh, pound that they're losing, it's like almost two pounds of muscle, right? It's something Mm -hmm. pretty radical like Mm -hmm. that. And I-
0: so, okay. so with, with extreme caloric restriction, without getting enough protein and without, you know, lifting heavy things over and over, you are going to lose muscle mass. And in that, you know, for every pound, half of that is a pound, half a pound of muscle.
1: Now, is there a way, and again, just cause so many people are, are now looking into it and, and taking it, is there a way if you somehow jumpstart? What is it about that, that jumpstarts the weight loss, that if you did adjust lifestyle, you could keep it off? Do you think that is actually possible?
0: So so the obesity specialists do think it's possible, but you have to do all of the lifestyle changes that are sustainable for long-term to keep it off and be able to get off the medication. Um, what happens in real life, though, that's really difficult for a lot of people and they're just so excited to get to that number on the scale as a society they've just been driven yeah. by this number and that being the only representative of their health and look doctors do it too I, I was sure. one of them you know this was willpower this was you just being lazy this you know without how complex the the factor of someone who's dealt with obesity and everything that feeds into it we live in an obesogenic society yeah and everything around us is trying to make us gain weight, you know, gain fat in places we don't want it or need it. And so, you know, untangling how difficult this process is, you know, is important. But most obesity medicine specialists feel like if we can get the lifestyle changes put into place and sustainable for this patient, that she may be able to get off the medication and sustain her weight
1: loss. It is it is an interesting like dilemma. You know, I I grew up for a little bit, I was raised by a Somebody who always was battling her weight since very young, and i I also think she had childhood trauma coupled with then you know more of a sedentary life and things like that. but then in her maybe uh late thirties, early thirties, she discovered this is when aerobics was around like in the eighties, but it trashed her knees, right? so she lost one hundred pounds and then gained one hundred pounds back. And so I remember thinking it was such an interesting, was that harder in a a different way. So, and what we're finding in the
0: rebound weight gain in people who lose that much muscle is everything they gain back is fat.
1: I only bring that up as just a, not a warning, but just to remind people that it might be a, a boost, but there's just no way around You know, we live in a time where everyone's hacking everything, Mm -hmm. and I just don't think that that really, you know, works in the long run. It doesn't. So can we slide over to hormone replacement therapy? Because I really Mm -hmm. appreciate it, because there's always been like, oh, well, if you've had cancer in your family, and there's just all this kind of weird voodoo around it. Right. Right.
0: And so most of that voodoo comes from one study. It was the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative, that the um, prelim- preliminary results were released, my fourth year of, of residency. So it kind of rocked the world. Like about eighty five percent of women were taken off or self, you know, self took themselves off of uh, hormone replacement therapy. And even though that study has been walked back, Retracted, you know, basically debunked most of it. That whole generation of physicians in multiple specialties have just warned people away, even though we have a plethora of data on the health and safety of hormone replacement in menopause for the vast majority of women being very,
1: very, very safe. And, you know, you'll hear people talk about bioidentical or Mm -hmm. Um, you know, synthetic, like just for clarity, because I think people, it's it's confusing. That's a great question. So
0: let me give you a primer. (laughs) So bioidentical simply means chemically similar or identical to what your body made. So what began as a simple way to explain different forms of estrogen that you can put in your body has become a marketing term. And really, I feel like it's been grossly overblown and other forms of estrogen have been demonized um, for really no no other no other reason than to sell you a certain thing and so what your ovaries make is estradiol And that is typically what I give to patients. And so you can get good, high-quality, efficacious, safe estradiol from CVS with a prescription for about $25 a month. You don't have to do pellets. You don't have to do creams or concoctions. You know, we have great, great body-identical, efficacious, safe hormone therapy that is very, very, very reasonable and affordable. A lot... Now, if you and your practitioner decide that you want to do a pellet or a cream or whatever... And, and you are not, if you're not offered all of the options, I walk through all of the options with my patients, the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits of each. And then she and I decide what's best for her, what's in her budget, you know, but in no way am I steering her towards one certain thing, especially one that's going to personally enrich me through a procedure. And so that is where I see there's a lot of lines, ethical lines being crossed with patients who are being kind of told, you must do this, this is the only thing we offer. Absolutely not. That should never be
1: the case. But how does, so is she just getting a new physician or is, you know, cause I think it's hard for patients to push back.
0: You know, it's, a, it is so hard. You know,
1: and so you a few minutes on my website,
0: I have a blog all about how to advocate for yourself for hormone therapy at your doctor's office. I have medical journal articles you can print out and hand to your doctor. And so that has worked. Um, Patients have told me. What has recently happened, and I've been in contact with a few of these companies, there are three or four online companies that saw a pain point here, that recognized that women are struggling to find healthcare practitioners who are willing to open the discussion with hormone therapy. You may decide you don't want it. Your body, your choice, I fully support that, okay? If you decide, not for me, I just want to white knuckle through this, do the nutrition exercise, do everything else you know fine absolutely but at least you deserve the conversation right and so so but finding a doctor who will even open that conversation is hard and so where do you turn so i'm like call ahead talk to the nurse in charge make sure that this doctor will even have the conversation with you and then if you can't find anyone there are several online companies that they are put on this world to discuss hormone therapy with you and and act as your advocate and and you know I'm not associated with any of them and I have a list of them on my website where we independently reviewed each one and talked about costs and how they make their money so there's one called Hey Midi 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 Health MIDI Health and so they do take insurance and they are probably in 8 or 10 states now with plans to be open in all 50 and so if insurance is your best option that's a good one to Try. There's also um Ever Now is another one and My Alloy, Alloy Health. They don't take insurance, but it's very reasonable, like 10, 20, $30 a month for a subscription and they mail you your hormone therapy that way.
1: So what do you do? Just get your blood panels done, they take a look and then they discuss your so options. Actually,
0: and this is another fallacy, you don't need a blood panel to determine if you're menopausal. You just if you're over you the age of mirror. 45 and you have not had a period. For one year, you are menopausal. We don't need a blood test. Your levels are going
1: to be zero. We know it. So if you haven't had, what's considered post-menopause? Is it like from the time you start your period?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of confusion over nomenclature. So menopause is one day in your life. Your you are menopause. Your menopause day is one year after your last menstrual period, if you have periods. So um, now, if I have someone who's had a hysterectomy and she's like, "I don't know," I'll do the blood work to confirm it, of course, you know. But if she's like, "I my last period was three years ago," I'm having hot flashes, my hip hurts, I'm having headaches, I'm having da da da, I'm I'm good. I know enough <laughs> to not have to send an expensive blood test. Perimenopause is different. Perimenopause, because I I talked about it earlier, we have this dramatic fluctuation as anybody who's been through it, it can really rock and roll your system. You feel great one day, you're kind of crazy the next day, you don't sleep the next day, you're sweating the next day. And so the the hormone levels really fluctuate. So a one-time blood test, sure, I can check it, but it's rarely diagnostic. Really, perimenopause can be diagnosed by talking to the patient, listening to the patient, believing the patient. You know, I'll do blood work to make sure I'm not missing hypothyroidism or autoimmune disease or, you know, depending on her symptoms, but I'm not checking hormones. I'm just go ahead and start a treatment discussion.
1: So between estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, what what is sort of each one? I know, you know, someone used to say, but progesterone is is, you know, the feel good, let it roll kind of. Hormone, And as it gets close, because people go, oh, why are people, you know, why is a woman sort of a little more aggro towards her cycle? It's like, well, the progesterone drops and that like, hey, whatever hormone sort of is lower than usual. I, actually, I think Alisa uh, Vitti had a great line where she said, keep a journal. And for three months in a row, if that same feeling about that employee or partner keeps showing up, that that's actually how you feel after three months, you know, like towards your period, <laughs> but how do you what are you prescribing and for what depending on what she's going through
0: so if she still has a uterus we are absolutely giving it to protect the lining of the uterus the endometrium from developing hyperplasia or cancer so when we when we prescribe hormone therapy in the form of estrogen we always have to buddy it with progesterone so she, you don't give her hyperplasia or malignancy um now there are a few patients who are still struggling with sleep are still, you know, having some issues, I will, or anxiety, especially at night if they have racing thoughts, progesterone can be helpful there. So when people have had a hysterectomy or have an I, you know, that progesterone IUD in place, I will sometimes add a little progesterone at night to see if I symptomatically can get them to feel better. But it's not done routinely in women with a hysterectomy. Testosterone is a little different. The only thing that has been medically shown through Studies that testosterone can be helpful with is what we call hypoactive sexual desire disorder or what you would call in the late you know lay people would call libido and so you know a woman's sexual function is is very complicated and there's kind of five buckets of why a woman can be can have can be unhappy about her sex life first of all, she has to be unhappy, not her partner and so um you know if you have a mismatch of desire, that is not her fault <laughs> so but we have a relationship disorder so if you're not feeling loved supported you know by your partner if you're not feeling you know nobody wants to do it that's you know and i can't fix that with medication there is arousal disorder desire disorder orgasmic disorder and pain if you're having pain and a lot of menopausal women from vaginal atrophy have pain we must fix the pain because usually if you had a good libido before it will come back if it doesn't hurt. Okay. Desire is what happens in the brain. It is that initial like, oh, that seems interesting. I'd like to do that. You know, arousal disorder is the physiologic response to a stimulus. So the vagina elongates, more blood flow gets pumped in there, the clitoris gets enlarged, all the physical things that happen. If that's not firing, that's usually a a um, circulation disorder or a nerve conduction disorder that's treated like in a specialist clinic's office. And then orgasmic disorder, you know, it's so sad. Probably 10% of women will never, ever, ever orgasm
1: in their life. And is that, is that um, an emotional sort of, and then they never had a partner?
0: We don't know. No one will study it and no
1: one cares. If
0: that happened to a man it would be the end of the world. I mean, if it would be like a national call to, you know, more money that was spent on arm on the arms race would be spent on fixing that for a man. And 10%? so it's very complicated. We're not sure. Lots more study needs to be done. So there's primary and secondary um anorgasmia. And so secondary means you used to do it and now you can't. And so right. There are specialists, but they're very few. They're overbooked. They're hard to get into. They don't have a lot of time. And these are really, really complicated issues to see why this is happening. Is it a nerve conduction disorder? I mean, a lot has to happen between this part of your body and this part of your body to have yeah. an orgasm, and that anybody can do it is kind of amazing. And so, um, is she not getting the right stimulation? Is she not, you know? And so, a lot of fallacies around every time I see a sex scene in the movies or on TV, it's like, I'm like, this doesn't happen. This is not a thing.
1: <laughs> like, no, it's true. It's so, like, my, no woman does my, this. My husband always jokes. He's like, "Is the moon? Is the moon in the right place? Are we good? Are we ready? You know, like <laughs> the moon retrograde." Like, yeah, he's like, "I'm like, it's not that complicated." He's like, "Huh, huh." You know, he, you know, that's the line when he, you know, they tell the young men, like, "Oh yeah, easy to please many women once. Try pleasing the same woman many times." And he's like, "Now that." <laughs> <laughs> now. <laughs> are you serious though? That many women I didn't, I didn't know mm-hmm. about don't that. don't talk statistic.
0: about it, you know? And they're actually the ones who come to my office who admit it are fine with it. They just, they have never, what do you know? They're like, I don't know what I don't know. It's pleasurable. I yeah. make my partner happy, you know, but no, I've mm-hmm. never had an
1: orgasm and it just makes me sad for them. Well, yeah. I mean, it's one of the beautiful things of in life. It's n- a nature's gift. You know, I, I often wonder you've been in a long relationship, and this is like a a philosophical question i guess is i feel like women if i and, and this would be true of any person I feel like when you're you can be in an overall no relationship is perfect, nurturing accepting loving sexual um you know kind of growing thriving relationship i feel like it supports that overall health. And, um, like, you know, I've met some women like they're in their eighties and I have a friend in particular and she has a look in her eye and I'm like, she has had a lot of love. She's been well loved. And I don't mean that you can only get it from a partner. Of course you can Mm -hmm. get it from your family and your kids, but it feels like something worth saying that you would like to try to, to have, you know, to, to speak, like even to speak up with your partner and be like, I, I'm not feeling appreciated or I'm not feeling loved. Cause I feel like when I think about health, that really is a supportive component. If, if you have, if you find someone that can really support you physically, but even like your, your sexual health.
0: You know, where I'm seeing kind of the crossroads for a lot of women who, you know, have made it past the divorce state, you know, they're like, I'm I'm in, I'm staying, I'm sticking here. We're going to go, we're going to die together. Okay. It's that empty nesting. You have devoted your whole life to schedules and kids and your, your schedule and his schedule and everybody's schedule and no, no, no. And then all of a sudden there's this huge gap. Like I empty nested this year for the first time and I was like, and my husband was working overseas quite a bit. So basically gone about six months a year. And at first I was like, you know, Tom Cruise dancing through the house, you know, by myself. This is amazing. Me and the dog. And then after about a week, I was like, I don't like it. I don't like it. And we have had to have multiple conversations about redefining who we are as a couple outside of taking care of children, yeah. you know, and and every aspect of our of our relationship, you know, sexual to household daily stuff, division of labor, you know, plus all the stuff on social media is making me... Cognizant, you know, my kids talk about it all the time. About, you know, they had two working parents. And, you know, I would leave him with children when I had to go work at the hospital for shifts. And I'd be like, here, keep them alive. Bye. You know, and um then he would bring them to the hospital in dirty clothes and their hair's a mess, but they were alive, you know. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> he had to do it, he cool. had no choice. You know, where his dad never changed a diaper. So you know, but like seeing that empty nesting—you know, at this age, um, a lot of us are—and how that kind of redefines our relationship.
1: Yeah, and I always joke that, like, in a way, when you have kids in the house, you have to consciously have a in sex life. Like, oh, they're when they're little, it's like, oh, they're sleeping. Oh, they're yeah. at a friend's house, <laughs> and then in a way, when they're sort of gone, it's like you have to almost create another re- a new relationship that is about who you are today. But I, I do. I think it's a really interesting really interesting dance. How do you feel about though testosterone cuz I hear, you know, a lot from performance people like, "Hey, listen, unless you're having kids, um testosterone is also important for women as it is uh, you know, cuz men are they love testosterone, they want to talk about it, they want to mm-hmm. know about it, they want to know about their numbers, but that it's also important for women."
0: So, you know, when I'm prescribing it and again, there's no great FDA, there's no FDA approved option for women. So that is one I have to compound, but I usually just do a local compounding pharmacy and we do a cream and, you know, we adjust the dose based on her symptoms but it's only going to be helpful for because the sexual response is so complicated it's only going to be helpful in probably 60 maybe 70% about you know about a third are not going to see a response what i'm prescribing it for off label are those patients with low muscle mass who i am so worried about them you know we're not talking about increasing performance i just want them to get some meat on their bones so that they don't fall and break in 20 years and testosterone supplementation with protein intake, with resistance training, those three can be really important tools to help her reach that goal. I'm not using it for anything else. I don't see enough studies for me to clearly say it's going to make you think better and some of the stuff that people are claiming.
1: So, so it's very clear, you know, teenagers, 20s, 30s, 40s, what we're eating, let's move enough, let's lift some weights. Let's get our heart rate going a few times a week. Let's do some cardio, but let's not get obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. These are all things that would also make this process a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Someone's listening and they go, well, that's all great for you guys, but I'm already in the pocket. I wasn't raised to be an athlete, mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm working on my, my food. Have you had patients that you really can, uh, whether they're 50s or 60s or even older, can you re- can they adapt? Can they shift and really impact themselves positively? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have
0: seen it because I can measure these things, measure their cholesterol, measure their A1C, measure their muscle mass. Like I have great indicators of health that I can utilize at any age. I've had 60s, 70, most of my patients are 40s and 50s, but definitely coming in later, like who, who are look, I, I I know I've got 20 more years. I want them to be the best that they can be. What can I do? And so we look at, I meet them where they're at and we start making changes. I mean, I had one patient come in who was coming in like three months for her follow-up and she walks in and she's sit throws herself down in the chair and she says, I'm so mad. And I go, okay, what's going on? She says, I can't believe I let myself be so miserable for so long. And now I feel so good. And then I let myself suffer, but because I didn't, I didn't listen to my body. I didn't, I listened to what the doctor told me that I just had to suck it up. You know, that's the problem is that so many of the physicians are like, welcome to this time in your life. There's nothing we can do. I don't believe in treating menopause, you know, and as a, as a, you know, physicians aren't trained in nutrition. They aren't trained in exercise outside of, you know, having a degree in it, you know, and, um, not the ones outside of sports and rehab medicine, but, you know, it's really hard to find a practitioner who's going to give you kind of a holistic plan.
1: Yeah. So that's, I feel like I just want to really drive that home because, I think people just think, oh well, that's not going to be for me. I missed the boat on that. And, no, and they it's could actually, never too late. Never no. too late to be and healthy. And they can actually be in their forties. And I feel like people kind of throw in the towel and just go, well, you know, I'm I'm this age now. And um, what if after people? And I know you're not maybe working with women this age, but let's say um, people have just had children and they're dealing with hormones because they're, you know, it's such a mm. in, an interesting and intensive process for the body. And then maybe they're not getting back to some level of a homeostasis. What would you say or suggest for them? Because I I know a lot of people are navigating that, especially if they had to take any kind of hormones to get pregnant. To get pregnant. So,
0: you know, this last conference, I, I went to a menopause symposium and they were likening the postpartum period to menopause. And they're very similar on a biochemical basis. And, you know, there's an advantage to having disrupted sleep because you can hear the baby better. There's, you know, there's some advantages to it, but man, you don't have to suffer. What I tell, you know, what I was telling my patients who were getting ready to have a baby, you've got to have resources in place. Don't expect to go home and be able to do this on your own, especially if your partner has to go right back to work. Like it is unnatural for you, you know, back in the cave days, you had a village helping you take care of the baby. Call in the troops, you know, lucky enough, I never had a great relationship with my mother. She was the best baby nurse in the freaking world. Like I fell in love with my mother when I had children because she came in, she has eight kids of her own and she was a boss. She was putting me on a schedule. She was taking that baby in the night. She was just, you know, and I was like, how would I do this, you know, without her? And so, my advice to postpartum is, you know, she was cooking healthy, delicious meals. You know, I wasn't have to, you know, I had time to shower. And so for six weeks, she hung in there with me and she brought me to her house, you know, when Chris had to travel and I was, you know, that is how it should be. Really call in the troops, get your besties, get your friends, get that community. Don't think that you can do this on your own because you need good nutrition. You need support. You know, you're taking your, your body's healing, your, your, your human being you're in charge of keeping alive. You know, it's amazing. They let you leave the hospital with a baby oh, and they yeah. put it in this plastic thing you've never seen, you've never used, but you take it out of the box and they're like, okay, bye. Don't kill it. After nine months of intensive reading and therapy and care, <laughs> you know, <laughs>
1: like, yeah. looking
0: at your partner going, they let me leave with this baby. <laughs> like, I can't believe it.
1: Is it? It is. Ama- I mean, it is amazing. And, and I think, I, I think it's really important. I think we see the world and we, and we think, oh, well that she makes that look so easy or how is, how do they have a new baby? They've lost the weight in their house is clean. And the same with menopause. It's like, well, how come there, they stayed, you know, and I put in quotes skinny and just reminding people like, Hey, listen, the only way to get to your own answer is to understand what you're navigating in the first place. And you've got to be honest about that. And not most people we all feel some threat of, of something similar. So just to, just to kind of, you know, move towards the finish line on this conversation a little bit is, is there, cause you read a lot of times if you read in like certain Chinese medicine or whatever, like keeping your cycle as long as you can, can actually be pretty healthy in certain yes. ways. So is there anything that we can do besides doing all these great things and getting to bed and managing our stress and eating Or is it just straight up genetics usually about how long you keep your cycle? Is there anything we can do to prolong it?
0: So not that we know of yet. I actually met a PhD researcher who is looking at different ways to prolong the life of the ovaries because the longer your ovaries stay alive, the longer you stay alive and in better shape. End of story. The earlier you are when you go through menopause, the higher your health risks. And we definitely, there's a huge genetic component. We know this. Um, and there's environmental components, but you know the research is just now starting because they're recognizing menopause estrogen deficiency as a pathologic state finally, and so now we're starting to do research on are there things that we can do? We know we can do things that mitigate symptoms. You know, people who eat Mediterranean diets have less dramatic menopauses have, and you know the more you have hot flashes, the higher your health risks are. If you're a super flasher you know, and part of that's genetic, then you have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Meaning you have so many hot flashes, they're disrupting your, your night, your day-to-day activities. And so that is something I'm very, very curious because the research is just beginning there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was always interested because like I said, I still have my cycle and you wonder like, should I be doing Chinese herbs or like, what should I be doing, you know, to, if there's anything. Um, and, I, and I think people are always interested in, in, in sex And as we get older, um, and this idea of, you know, I mean, people are uncomfortable to talk about lubrication and things like that. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) So what do you, I mean let's say, I mean, she's doing all she can. She's feeling pretty good, but sometimes it's just drier when you're sure. having sex. So
0: I think all women should use a lubricant and or
1: moisturizer. And so a
0: moisturizer is something that's going to pull water and hold water in the vagina and keep it moist. Um, so if you're like uncomfortable with exercise, you're feeling some like you know, friction or rubbing just on walking day-to-day activities, you would really benefit from a daily moisturizer. So they have hyaluronic acid, which holds a thousand times, I think it's weight in water. And there's like, um, there's multiple ones on the market, um, that, and they come and usually ovules or something you can just insert in the vagina, they melt and they last for three or four days versus a lubricant, which is something that's going to decrease friction. And so my favorite lubricants are going to be oil or oil-based or silicone-based. So Astroglide's like a fave at our house. Uh, my friend Naomi Watts makes a, a product <laughs> called Oh My Glide. She has cute names. <laughs> so um, that, is, that is a favorite. It's very reasonably priced. It is oil-based there is, KY makes a product called Silk E. It's vitamin E based. Um, some people just use plain old coconut oil and thinks it you know, absolutely fine works great. Just watch the bacteria content um, on some of those packaging. So um, there's lots of things that you do, but I am a huge fan. I think every woman from 35 on should be using a lubricant. Eighty per, Women's 80% increase in weight, their pleasure from orgasms with a lubricant versus not. It just makes everything kind of better down there. Um, anytime you can, and you need, you need stimulation, you know, you need clitoral massage to, for most of us to have an orgasm. If that process can be easier and, and feel better, then why not?
1: And you're saying even for, for young women, like.
0: Yeah. Try it. If you, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And if it's going to enhance your pleasure, why not? Just give it a try.
1: Yeah. I don't know why we got so uptight or, or weird about talking about stuff like this if women, I mean, women are in this part of their life for almost 40% of their life um, Mm -hmm. and you talk about it. And so I just, I feel like what you're talking about and reminding women that it's, you know, I can't, I hate when people go, well, you know, I'm just that age or it's just, they accept it. And, and the other thing is, I think it's the people you're around. I think women have to, or all people, it's just in general, you have to be very careful not to be around people that, well, that's how it is, you know? And I I really want to encourage people to sort of take that bull by their horns. So you have um, free questionnaires on your site,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and you know, I I I think that I would like to just remind people though. You said something very important is you talk specifically about insulin and insulin sensitivity and chronic inflammation. So. I really want to remind people that exercise helps you. It's not about burning calories; it's about insulin management, and this is something that you are, you know, very clear on. But I think women, uh, there's a great uh, endocrinologist, Robert Lustig, who talked about, oh, you're going to eat a chocolate chip cookie and think you're going to ride your bike and burn it off. He's like, it's ridiculous. And so this whole calorie thing and calorie out, yes, of course you want to be aware. But it's right. it's not it it's, doesn't work the way people think it no it, the way they're much think more complicated than a bank machine. Right. Yeah. And so if if someone uh, maybe they've been getting their ass kicked for a while on this and maybe they gained 35 pounds or you know, and they're in it, there's still a way to come back from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I see it every day. And if you've been feeling crazy and forgetful and all the things that everybody claims, there is a way to regain. Kind of yourself, mm-hmm. there was one interesting thing and 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 then i'll I'll kind of end it on this that I did want to bring up that I thought was very interesting that you talked about is that if people can sort of learn where they're at in their health, there is some indications that the hormone therapy can help with Alzheimer's prior prior to it, but that once people have it, it actually may not can make be it worse. at all Alzheimer's right. and so, dementia. Right. So, there's
0: a timing hypothesis for hormone replacement therapy, and um, it's better at prevention of these chronic diseases than at stopping it once it gets started. Oh. So, for the health benefits outside of hot flashes and night sweats and sleep disruption, for the decreasing cardiovascular risk, um, you know, if you already have heart disease, estrogen can actually make it worse. Um, for atherosclerotic disease. And so starting before the disease process starts can actually give you a longer shelf life to live without the disease.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because it's consistent with like Perlmutter wrote that book, Grain Brain. And he talked about pretty much we don't know about Alzheimer's because you, you can't tell if your brain's chronically inflamed. But like once you click over, it's like you're kind of in the game and you don't have a choice. And mm-hmm. so I think all of these things that you're talking about are so important because while we have the chance to impact mm-hmm. all of these things that we that we do that. Um, and then finally, uh, Dr. Haver, you said that you take, just for real clarity for people on the probiotic side, you take 80 billion or what is it that yeah, you- Yeah, my
0: favorite is, and you know it's what I picked up at the local health food store and I've just kind of stuck with it. It's the Garden of Life, um, 80 billion raw. When I'm home, when I'm traveling, I do the encapsulated because- refrigeration. Um, and that, you know, billions is better. Whatever probiotic you choose, you want something in the billions because you lose a lot in digestion. They die off, you know, from acids in the stomach. Um, you want you want just enough to get through. You want something with a lot of different speciations. So mine, I think, has, in the 30s, um, different species. You want some lactobacillus for vaginal vulva health. You want streptomyces. You want kind of, you know, all the things um, to help keep the gut healthy. And you want to make sure that the company does some third-party testing. They have an independent tester come in to make sure what they say, because these things are not regulated by the FDA. They're considered to be food. And so you want to make sure that there's somebody's tested it to make sure that at least what they say is in it is in it and do you is alcohol do you talk about alcohol at all i'm going to talk about it more in my next book um you know here's the problem with alcohol in (laughs) what makes alcohol healthy in the form of wine is not ethanol it is the resveratrol in the in the wall of the grape and so there's a fine line yes in um people who are enjoying a glass of wine at night in the Mediterranean, they seem to be a little bit healthier than people who who don't do that. But there's a very fine line between losing any benefit from alcohol from having too much. And that's where people struggle, is not the occasional drinker, it's the people who chronically use and then abuse alcohol because of the tolerance we develop. And we've seen a lot more of that since COVID.
1: Yeah, understandably. Dr. Haver, you're a very busy woman. You've, you have, you know, practices and patients and kids and husbands, and you're taking care of yourself. Do you, I mean, you know, some people come into the world where they can navigate and deal with a lot and you, you clearly seem like one of those people, but do you have a practice in place that really is there to support you besides the lifestyle? Like, I'll give you an example for me personally. I'm a, even though I I tend to be what someone would say is more kind of stoic, you know, you come from an athletic background, you come, you know, going to medical school and you know, big family, it's like you probably just deal with it. But I do always check in to see how I'm really feeling. Genuinely, I, I'm pretty good about standing up for that. Like I do mm-hmm. that one thing. Is there something you do that helps you because you do manage so much that helps you kind of keep the decks clear?
0: Well, I, you know, worked with a therapist for a while. This is, um, and probably the best thing I've ever done. And what she got me practicing was, um, doing meditation and journaling. And so those were things that I felt were just woo woo you know, like not really wouldn't be helpful. I don't like to, you know, when I, in the vinyasa and yoga, I'm like, what's she doing? What's wearing? Is that a bug? I don't know. You know, and so I'm like, there's no way I'll be able to meditate. And so, but I I downloaded this app at her suggestion um, called Headspace and did guided meditation, three, five minutes, nothing crazy. And I was astounded by that. I actually could do it and I look forward to it and I enjoy it. And for the journaling, it's mostly gratitude, like just taking a minute to to say thanks to the world you know, for my life, you know, and and what am I letting go of today? And so and the things that I'm letting get under my skin or bother me, just imagining in my head, you know, writing them down. And then I'm it's usually people. And so that I I wrap it in a bubble or a balloon and then I let it go into the sky and I just see it floating away. That's kind of my visual imagery of like things that are just bugging me. And so being consistent with that practice really helps me be a better person and better serve, you know, my community.
1: Did you, is there something you've come in out that really showed up to be true for you to, to kind of help you in parenting? Like just, you know, I think we all have a couple, I always talk about being an example and, and this is like trying to simplify it. Is there anything that really showed up for you being a parent that um, supported what you were trying to accomplish as a parent?
0: I, it was the meditation and the journaling, you know, um, really, and then watching my children turn into adults and, you know, going from that relationship change of, you know, hovering and having to manage to watching them become people and making their own decisions. And so, I mean, I have cranked out two magnificent human beings and, you know, my husband and our community and our friends and their extended family have all helped them be, You know, wonderful people. Did I screw it up? Absolutely. You know, are the things I regret? Yes. Um, I checked out after my brother's death. I don't even know. I can't even tell you what they did, you know, during those six months, but they survived. And so, you know, trying to set an example of, you know, being able to manage all the things and saying no and setting up boundaries, I think has, has been the best parenting, you know, lesson is like teaching them that it's okay to set boundaries and say, no, that you, it, you know, you have to protect you first. And then that next layer, which is your kid, you know, the people who you bring into that first circle and, you know, keeping those things a priority, which is something I did not do well when they were little. I said yes to everything. You know, I wanted to be super mom and super doctor and super whatever. And so, um, and menopause has been helpful there. I've, my give a shit factor has really decreased and I'm just so focused on what works for me personally. And, um, I guess that I can let go that they're, they're going to be okay. Mm. <laughs> I don't have to worry about them. So, I mean, I do worry, of course, my mom, I'm not yeah. checking their location every five minutes when they're out at the bars, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I am. And, uh, I do that. And, um, but you know, that they are making good decisions and so far knock wood mm-hmm. and that I can just relax and
1: rest and focus on me. And then, and then finally, just in marriage, what showed up for you? You have been in a long relationship and you guys are busy and and you're two different individuals, you know, creating this family. What were things that really kept coming throwing up that helped both of you navigate the relationship or you? Like you come cuz I feel like we come in one way and then we get the skill set and we go, "Oh, that seems to really work." So,
0: you know, um one we never wanted to break up at the same time, you know, um that I don't know if that's luck or whatever, but you know whenever one of us was pulling away, the other one was h- hanging in there, and um that I've found a new voice through this process, and being able to verbalize what I need, and you know, he's just happy, he's happy, he could stay doing the same thing forever, and he's just a happy person all the time, you know the only thing he gets upset about is the house is messy, and um because he's he's Type A like that. But, you know, him being able to, it might take him a minute, but, you know, listen to what I'm saying, internalize it. And he really wants to make me, ha- you know, he really wants to be a person that I can count on. And I don't want to say make me happy like that. But, you know, and so realizing that I have a voice and I can verbalize the things that I want. And if, my part, you know, we've gone from a marriage to a partnership, you know, like, like, and we're at the point where we don't have to stay together because the kids are fine, you know? And, you know, financially we've both done okay. So if we're not tied to each other because of that either. And like, now we're deciding to be, a, be together and grow old together. And it's kind of exciting. So
1: yeah, we're I leaving tomorrow crazy.
0: to go to Patagonia for two weeks to go hiking.
1: amazing <laughs> Well, I did I if I was a patient and did I miss something that felt really important that I I didn't cover that you want to just remind people before we go.
0: You know, uh, one of, you know, the, the top tips that I can give people that you're probably not doing, you know, at least as far as nutrition goes, is um, you know, make sure you're getting enough fiber. Track it for a couple weeks and then try to add foods that, you know, fiber Take a vitamin D supplement if you're not. Ask for your doctor to have your levels checked. Most of them will do it. And then you may need a much higher dose than you think. You know, get your sunshine, eat your salmon um, if you can, you know, as, as good sources, but you're probably going to need a vitamin D supplement. You, aging is normal, but suffering is not. And so, you know, all of us expect to not feel the same as we did at 25, but if you're just life disruptive and you are not happy because of how you feel, there is, you just need to find the right person to guide you through this, that you do not have to suffer through this. You can be a whole person feeling normal, feeling productive, you know, having the best years of your life right now.
1: Dr. Haver, can you just remind everybody all the places that they can find you? (laughs) Thank you.
0: So our website is GalvestonDiet.com. Um, you can find me on TikTok at Dr. Mary Claire, all one word, like D-R-M-A-R-Y-C-L-A-R-E, also on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We are on uh, YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, has my longer videos where I do a lot of talk around menopause and nutrition. And, and then um, we're also on Pinterest. So, you know, pretty much everywhere. But if you just go to our website, you can click all the social social media channels there.
1: I really, like I said, appreciate what you are reminding people and, and consolidating all the information and and congratulations on this next chapter. I'm excited you. for you. It's like a bolt on to what you were already really doing and now being able to bring that to more people. So thank you and thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website, Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday, where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners.